So today's Bible reading is from Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 to 37. So then a demon oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods, unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed, then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the people blasphemy, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For you, by your words, will be justified, and by your words will be condemned. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, my name's Dan. I'm one of the pastors here at Wyoming Church of Christ, and it's great to see you this morning, as it were. I'm not actually seeing you, of course. So I'm just looking at a camera, but hey, we're actually all here as a church, ready to hear the Word of God, and that is such an exciting thing. And so uh, I'm going to pray for us now as we come into God's Word. Dear Lord, thank you that you continue to speak to us today through the words of the Bible, the Scriptures, uh, which you have given to us. Lord, thank you for this gift, the gift of your word. We pray, please give us eyes to see wonderful things in your word this morning and ears to hear the truth of what you have to say. In Jesus' name, amen. You know something that feels really good? It's the moment when you see someone turn the tables on someone else. Like, just picture this for a moment. Uh, there's a young woman, she's sitting on her seat on an aeroplane. I know that's unthinkable at the moment, like who would get in a plane right now, but this is, you know, some months ago. Uh, so she's sitting in the seat and an older man comes and sits next to her and she's there playing a mobile game. So her head is very much in her screen. And the older man leans over to her and sort of nudges and says, why don't you try reading a book? And so she puts her phone down and she pulls a book out of her bag, turns it over and guess whose face is on the back? Well, it's hers. This is in fact Celeste Ng. She is a top 10 New York Times best-selling author. And don't you just love a moment like that where someone has, has made this false assumption, right? Oh, here's this young woman. She's just got her head in her phone, you know. But actually the tables have been turned on this guy. It's a great moment, feels good, as long as you're not on the receiving end of it, of course. 
uh, like me, for example, when I was in my very first class, uh, my first English class at university. Now, this is years ago. Uh, and I say that just to preserve the emotional distance from this moment because what happened is I go into class, I'm there a little bit early because I'm nervous, it's, yeah, it's my first university class and the only other person there is a young woman sitting at the side of the room and so being the friendly guy that I am, I come and sit down near her and she's got a stack of books and so I just go, hey, how you doing? My name's Dan, oh hi, I'm Jacinda. Hey, so, uh, you know, English, <laughs> right, and we get talking and uh, what's your favourite book? Oh, it's this. Uh, what about yours? Oh, it's this. Uh, hey, how have you found the start of the year? And she tells me about the start of the year. She asks me, how have you Oh, you know, it's just so stressful starting uni for the first time. So many unknowns. Then I go, hey, why did you choose to study English? The conversation goes back and forth. Then I ask her, how have you found your classes so far? And she looks at me kind of awkwardly and she goes, oh, Actually, I'm teaching this class. And by this point, other students have filed in and they've all heard that this has happened. And so then I have to sit through the rest of this class sitting next to the teacher that I assumed was a student. I then need to spend the rest of semester with Jacinda knowing what's happened and the rest of this class knowing what's happened. Now, they probably all forgot about it, but of course I didn't because the tables got turned on me and my assumptions. And you know what's even worse? After semester was over and I thought, great, I'm done with this. I make a good friend in second semester and him and I uh, start hanging out. And uh, then one day I see Jacinda come walking up to us. It's actually his sister. And so I just can't escape it. <laughs> Seeing someone turn the tables on someone else and their false assumptions is great. As long as you're not on the receiving end of it. And as we jump back into the book of Matthew here, uh, Matthew chapter 12, what we're going to see is Jesus turning the tables on people. He turns the tables on their false assumptions about God and about him. This is also a really dangerous passage because in reading it, we may find in fact that Jesus also turns the tables on us. Because perhaps as Reynard was reading the scriptures for us before you heard the really challenging things that Jesus says. He points out the lack of logic that people might hold in their assumptions about him. He throws out really heavy phrases like an unforgivable sin. He talks about judgment and how even the most careless words we speak will be weighed at the judgment seat of God. We may find in reading this passage that actually Jesus turns the tables on us and highlights something that we really need to hear. And so I just want to invite you, wherever you might be at in your journey in thinking about God, uh, to check your assumptions at the door this morning. Be willing to interrogate your assumptions about Jesus. Perhaps if you're someone who wouldn't call themselves a Christian, uh, it's great that you're listening this morning, but I would invite you to consider investigating the beliefs that you have this morning. Interrogate the, the assumptions that you have about Jesus. And if you're someone who would call themselves a Christian, I invite you just to do the same. Be willing to put the claim that you're a Christian to the test. Be willing to question it. This is big stuff, this is heavy stuff, but we're going to jump into it together, okay? So Matthew chapter 12, verse 22. 
If you've got your Bibles there, if you've got kids sitting with you this morning, uh, make sure that they can see it in front of them. Matthew chapter 12, verse 22. And you'll see here that the passage starts with a miracle. Uh, A man who is oppressed by a demon is brought to Jesus. Uh, This man is mute, he's blind. And then all the details we get is that Jesus heals the man. That's it. End of story. And across Matthew's gospel, you know, we would expect something different, wouldn't we? Because often we get quite a bit of detail about a, a conversation that happens prior to the miracle. And, and, you know, maybe Jesus does it in a special way. Uh, but here it's just, oh, here comes the man, he's oppressed with a demon, bada bing, bada boom, Jesus heals him, done. That's because the miracle isn't the point of the passage. We only get a handful of words because it's not the point. The point is actually what happens next. It's in how people respond to the miracle. And you can see there that the crowd in verse 23 are amazed. Look at the question that they ask. They ask, can this be the son of David? And one of the unhelpful things, of course, about reading words on a page is that you can't actually hear the original tone, can you? And there are different ways that this could be taken. Maybe it's positive, like, oh, could this actually be the son of David? Could this be uh, the, the king that God has raised up to save us? There's a positive way of reading these words, but there's also a negative way of reading these words. And I think that it's actually the negative tone that's in play here, and I'll explain why. It probably sounds like this. It's like, this couldn't possibly be the son of David, could it? This couldn't possibly be the son of David, could it? And the reason I say that is because across the, the Gospel of Matthew, what have the crowds expected about the son of David, about the Messiah that is to come? Have they expected him to come teaching and healing? Well, no, they've expected him to come on a war horse. They've expected him to come with a sword to come and drive out these nasty Romans who have have taken over the the land that is owed to the Jewish people, right? They're the ones keeping God from fulfilling his promise to give us the land that we're owed, the land that he promised us. And so they expect the Messiah, the son of David, the true king, God's anointed king, to come with a sword, riding a war horse, and drive out the Romans, and Jesus is doing anything but. He's teaching and he's healing. This couldn't possibly be the son of David, God's anointed king, could it? And so the crowd probably, even as they're amazed at this miracle, are doubting. That's their response. But then look at the Pharisees' response. Here we have the religious leaders, the religious teachers, the elite. Look at their response in verse 24. But when the Pharisees heard it, when they heard about this miracle, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. So on the one hand, you've got the crowds doubting. But on the other hand, you've got the Pharisees actually launching an accusation. They're saying, oh, Jesus has performed this this miracle, driven out this demon, and I know why. It's because he's in league with Satan himself. This is satanic power at work. And this is where Jesus turns the tables. Take a look at verse 25. He takes their accusation. He actually turns it back on them. He goes on the defense. 
Look at verse 25. It says that Jesus knows their thoughts. He's no fool. He's not like the man on the plane who didn't recognize the best-selling author next to him. He's not like me walking into my first English class and not recognizing the teacher, right? He knows their thoughts. And then he gives them an illustration. He says, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And we all know this, right? Just look at Australian politics over the last 10 or 15 years. Any party that has kept changing its leaders over and over doesn't stay in parliament for very long, right? A kingdom divided against itself will not stand. It's an obvious fact. And so, verse 26, if Satan casts out Satan... He is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? Now, anyone can see what's going on here. Jesus is just pointing out how illogical the Pharisees' argument is. Oh, hold on. You're saying that I'm using satanic power to overthrow Satan? That's like saying that 2 plus 2 equals 5. It just doesn't add up. Yet Satan would only be weakening himself. See, and then he turns the tables even more. He says, well, hold on, let's just entertain the thought. If it's true that I am actually driving out Satan using satanic power, then what about your sons? What about the other Jewish people who are going around claiming that they too can drive out demons? These people that you say are fair, you know, you say they're good, you say that they're true blue. Surely they too must be driving out demons in the name of Satan, right? You see how he turns their accusation back on them? I know it's a bit weird to consider that there are other people out there driving out demons. Uh, what's interesting though is that um, Josephus, the great Roman historian at this point in time, um, he actually notes that there were other Jewish people going around claiming at least that they could drive out demons and whether that was you know some sort of illusion or trickery or, or whether it was real um, we can't say but certainly there were other people that were kind of allies of the pharisees going around doing this and so jesus is saying well hold on if you say i'm satanic then you've got to say that they are too again the pharisees logic just doesn't make sense they're saying two plus two equals five now why would the pharisees hold to such an easily dismantled argument. Right? We've just dismantled it in a matter of seconds. Why would they hold to such an easily dismantled argument? Well, because of their pre-existing assumptions. See, they've already concluded that Jesus can't be the Son of God. They've already concluded that Jesus simply cannot be the Messiah. And so they look at this miracle that's happened and note that they don't dispute the miracle. They don't say that this is an illusion or a trickery or, or something. No, it really happened before their eyes. But then they say, well, the reason this has happened can't be because Jesus has been sent by God. It can only be because he's operating by satanic power. That must be it because of their pre-existing assumptions. And people do this all the time today. I don't know if you've ever had a, a conversation with someone that's gone something like this. You know, you're talking about Jesus, you're talking about the evidence that he really is the son of God. And you talk about how he's, you know, he went to the cross, but he rose from the dead. And then they say, you know, there's no way that could happen. That's just scientifically impossible. And then you say, well, hold on. 
why are you saying that that can't happen? Because science says that it can't. People don't come back from the dead. And then you say, well, hold on a second. You're assuming here that there's no God who exists that could indeed raise someone from the dead. No God, in fact, who invented and created the scientific principles which we now hold as true. Now, if that God exists, then surely he can raise Jesus from the dead, right? See, the pre-existing assumptions can, in fact, blind someone from considering the evidence. Or what about someone who says that Jesus wasn't really the Son of God, he was just a man? He was just a wise teacher. And then you say something like, well, okay, how did you actually come to that conclusion? And the person says something like, oh, you know, it's, it's just what I think. It's just my opinion. You go, hold on, well, have you actually looked at Jesus' words for yourself? Have you actually read what the Bible says about Jesus and, and come to a conclusion based on that evidence? Oh, no. Right, see, people today often operate so much just from pre-existing assumptions rather than looking at the evidence. And Jesus turns the tables on that kind of thinking, just as he does with the Pharisees. And he doesn't do this because he gets a kick out of it, right? It's not like he, he needs his ego to be stroked or something. He actually does this because he wants people to properly understand who he is. And that's why when we come to verse 28, Jesus actually gives the Pharisees a different way of thinking about his miracles. It's like he's saying, look at it another way. Verse 28, But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. He's saying, I'm not operating by satanic power. Actually, I'm operating with the power of the Holy Spirit. This is God the Father having sent God the Son to earth and anointed him with God the Holy Spirit, as we saw back in, in Matthew chapter 3. And now Jesus is operating with the power of the Holy Spirit. That is how he's performing the miracles that he does. And what that means is that Jesus has come to establish God's kingdom. He's actually overthrowing Satan and his power and establishing that actually it's God who's in control. It's God who's the king. It's God who's in charge. And he gives an illustration of that in verse 29. Right? He says you can't go and plunder a strong man's house without first incapacitating the strong man. You've got to tie him up before you steal his stuff. And you know, obviously Jesus here isn't saying, you know, hey, if you want to be a criminal, here's how you do it. Right? You know, Jesus' top 10 tips on how to break the law. It's, it's obviously not that. This is Jesus just giving an illustration. He's pointing out the obvious. If you want to steal someone's stuff, first you've got to tie them up. And so what he means here is that God is establishing his kingdom and he's doing it by first tying up Satan. He's doing it by depowering Satan, as it were, to make it clear that God is the true king. And so Jesus' miracles... Like the one we see here in this passage is, if you imagine it like a boxing fight, right? This is like Jesus giving the one-two jab to Satan and putting him on the ropes, all right? He's really laying in the flurry of punches now. And then as Matthew's gospel goes on, we see the knockout blow at the end of the gospel, right? It's where Jesus actually goes to the cross and gives his life. And you may say, well, hold on a second. How does that land a knockout blow on Satan? Jesus dying. 
Well, come over with me to Colossians chapter 2. Uh, and this is such a helpful verse. It's written sometime later. Uh, Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 to 15. It says this, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, with Jesus, having forgiven us all our trespasses by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Now, Satan's ultimate power is not just to make someone blind or make someone mute as we see in this passage from Matthew, okay? And that's why we don't really see that sort of thing much today. Uh, this isn't really Satan's ultimate power. His ultimate power is actually to accuse us of sin. Uh, the Bible says that Satan was a murderer and a liar from the beginning. He wants to spread deception. He wants to spread death. And the biggest way he does that is by accusing us of sin, by saying to us, you cannot be part of God's kingdom. And he's right. Take a look at what it says in verse 13. Uh, you were dead in your trespasses, dead in your sins. See, Satan is right in a sense if he says to us, you cannot be part of God's kingdom. We can't because of our sin. We deserve God's judgment. But the great truth is that in Jesus' death on the cross, he deals with our sin. He makes us alive together with him. He forgives us all our trespasses. He cancels the record of debt that stood against us. He set them aside as God nailed them to the cross. Because as Jesus is nailed to the cross, he's nailed, in fact, in our place. He's killed as if he is a sinner, as if he is the lawbreaker, as if he is the one deserving of God's judgment. So that we can go free, forgiven, and notice what that means in verse 15. Here's what it means for Satan, the, the ruler, the authority. He is disarmed. He has no weapon anymore. And so even if he says, look at this sinner, look at your sin, look at why you can't be part of God's kingdom. If we trust in Jesus, that in his death, he paid the price for our sin. He cancelled the debt that stood against us. Uh, he took the judgment that we deserve then okay satan says look at this sin and we say hold on what sin it's been dealt with by jesus christ at the cross it's gone and so satan is put to shame as jesus jesus triumphs over him it's like the words of the song that perhaps you miss singing on a sunday morning the song before the throne I actually took it out just with the very few people who are here helping make the, uh, the sermon and the, the service happen this morning. Uh, I took out my guitar and uh, we just sung this together. And the second verse of this song is so powerful. It says this, When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upwards I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Saviour died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him, on Jesus, and pardon me. 
This is why Satan is dethroned. He can no longer accuse us of sin. He harbors no real power. And so what we see in the Gospel of Matthew, in this miracle that Jesus performs, is, as I said, the one-two punch putting Satan on the ropes. And then the knockout punch comes as Jesus dies on the cross, dealing forever with sin and death, depowering Satan. And then Jesus rises from the dead, proving he's the Son of God, and says, I will return to finally, fully, and forever establish the kingdom of God for all to see. And in that moment, you know, it's when the, the referee says, it's a knockout, and the bell rings, and Satan lies dead on the ground. Now, of course, for you and I, we're in this period right now that's, that's after the miracle and after Jesus' death and resurrection, but before he returns. And so um, coming back over to the Gospel of Matthew, come back over to chapter 12 to me, with me, and, and just notice that in verse 28, he doesn't say here that the kingdom of God will come upon you. He says, in fact, that it has come upon you. He's actually talking about it in sort of this present tense. It's happening right now before your eyes. The kingdom of God is being established as Jesus puts Satan on the ropes and as Jesus delivers the knockout punch. But Satan is still on his feet. He's still stumbling around. He's still trying to fight back. And that's the time period in which we find ourselves right now. But the day is coming where Jesus returns and finally, fully and forever establishes God's kingdom, defeating Satan once and for all. The fight is not yet over, but the victory is assured. God has established his kingdom and his kingdom is finally, fully and forever coming at Jesus' return. See, and the Pharisees actually have a chance to see this with their own eyes. That's the amazing thing. They actually see with their own eyes. Jesus is putting Satan on the ropes. He's actually bringing the kingdom of God. It's happening right before them. And yet, they're so blinded by their own assumptions that they won't accept the truth of the evidence. And so consider this. How do you interpret Jesus' miracles? How do you interpret Jesus' miracles? Do you see him as some sort of charlatan? You know, a trickster. Someone who just performs illusions. Do you see him as evil, like the Pharisees? Or perhaps do you think that this is all just made up? This is a myth? Beware of your assumptions. We all need to put our assumptions to the test because they can blind us. This is true in so many areas of life, and it's true when it comes to our perception of Jesus. Beware of your assumptions. You may indeed have blinded yourself to considering what's true. And so one advantage, for example, of this strange time in which we live right now is, of course, we do have more chance, more time to reflect. And I encourage you to reflect on the assumptions that you hold about Jesus. Who do you believe him to be? And how have you come to those conclusions? Be willing to interrogate your assumptions. In fact, be willing to put them to the ultimate test by actually reading part of the Bible for yourself. Uh, read through the Gospel of Matthew if you haven't done so before. Read through, write down your questions, right? Circle things that you think are, are doubtful or just don't make sense to you. 
And, uh, you know, there are people who are part of our church who would just love to help you find some answers to that questions as we're able to. And so you could just shoot us a message on the website uh, or, or give one of us a call. We would love to go on that journey with you or give you a book or give you a resource or anything that would help you. And if you're a Christian, um, I'd encourage you, just if you're in a conversation with someone who doesn't share your beliefs, try and get them to consider the assumptions that they have. Right? Because it's one thing to present a, a bunch of evidence for why you believe that Jesus is the Son of God. But um, some people won't consider that evidence if they've already locked off in their mind, well, he can't be. And so there can be really good questions that you ask. Just ask questions like, why do you believe what you do? Uh, how did you come to that conclusion? It's a really powerful question. just invites people to be curious about their own assumptions and to investigate them. Now, uh, if you are a Christian, I don't want you to tune out and consider, well, this is all for non-Christians. This is all for people out there. And so I appreciate the tips, Dan, but, you know, this isn't really for me. Don't tune out because Jesus actually has more to say. He's gone on the defense against the Pharisees' accusations, but now he's going to go on the offense. He's going to throw down the gauntlet. And he's going to say some stuff that's really heavy, as he turns the tables on what may in fact be you and me. Come with me to verse 30. Here's what Jesus says. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Now, what's he saying? He's saying there is no room for neutrality. There is no room for sitting on the fence when it comes to Jesus. You're either in or you're out. You're either with him or against him. You're part of God's kingdom or you're not. And, you know, actually, if we're honest, that makes total sense. Uh, we've been talking here about uh, Jesus anointed by the Holy Spirit to come and, and bring the kingdom of God, right? This isn't just a matter of opinion. Uh, God's kingdom is here and it's coming and you're either part of it or you're not, right? There's no room for neutrality. So this makes sense. But look at what comes next. See, we might assume that we're part of God's kingdom. And we might assume that for various reasons. The Pharisees certainly did. They assumed that they were on God's side. Which is why Jesus turns the tables by speaking with the utmost gravity in verse 31. These are heavy words. Look at what Jesus says. Therefore, I tell you, Every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. But the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. And this is heavy stuff. I wonder what your first response to hearing those words is. You know, maybe you're hearing them and you're confused. You're thinking, well, hold on. Dan, we've just been talking about how Jesus comes to bring forgiveness. And now he's talking about a sin that can't be forgiven. Isn't, isn't God's love greater than that? How does that make sense? Good question. Or maybe you're sitting there and you're actually feeling like anxious. You're feeling fearful because maybe you're, you're wondering, 
have I committed this sin at some point? Have I done this unforgivable thing? And so it really matters that we work this out because we want to clear up the confusion and we want to see if those fears are legitimate. And to help us work it out, the context is really important. So actually, before thinking about, oh, what is the unforgivable sin? Look at what's actually happening in this scene, right? It's to do with blasphemy. Whatever this sin is, it's to do with blasphemy. It's to do with words that are spoken about God. And more specifically, it's blasphemy not against the Son of Man, against Jesus, but against the Holy Spirit. And so what some people have said over time is, um, oh, you know, the unforgivable sin is not believing in Jesus. Perhaps you've heard something like that. Um, It doesn't really work because, hold on a second, if the unforgivable sin is not believing in Jesus and then you come to believe in Jesus and now you're forgiven, well, what happens to the sin of unbelief that was there before? Uh, It doesn't quite add up. And at the same time, we see here that it's not blasphemy against Jesus that's in view, it's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. So whatever this is, it's obviously a little bit deeper than just not believing in Jesus. And so look at the scene. Think about what the Pharisees are actually doing. What are they doing? They're looking at the work of the Holy Spirit through Jesus. And they're saying, this is evil. This is evil. This is the work of Satan. And in so doing, they're actually blaspheming. They're attributing the work of God through the Holy Spirit to the work of Satan and nothing could be further from the truth. Now, are they doing that because they're ignorant? Are they doing that because they're naive or a little slow? Are they doing that because, hey, they're just on a journey and they're they're working their way through this? No. The Pharisees are doing this in spite of the clear evidence in front of them. They don't dispute that Jesus is performing miracles. They know the truth, but they refuse to accept it because of their pre-existing assumptions. They willfully reject the evidence, even as it stares them in the face. And then they express that rejection through blasphemy, through these sort of illogical accusations that make the Holy Spirit's work through Jesus appear evil. I'll try and illustrate this for you. It's like if you imagine that guy on the plane at the start of today's sermon, right? He's sitting next to Celeste Ng and um, she's then showed him the book and he sees the face. He sees her name on the front of the book. The evidence is all there. And in his mind, he goes, oh, there's no way around this, except she can't possibly be an author. Look at her. Her head's in her phone. No way. Right, and so he looks at the book and he goes, you must have photoshopped this. Now, this can't be true. You're not just addicted to your phone. You're a liar. Do you see the difference there? It's actually uh, when someone, or blaspheming the Holy Spirit is, is nothing less than this. It's consciously disputing the indisputable. It's willfully, continually, rejecting the clear evidence that Jesus is the Son of God anointed with the Holy Spirit. It's more than just unbelief. 
It's more than just being on a journey towards figuring out God. It's seeing the evidence, knowing what the truth really is, and yet continuing to reject it. This, according to Jesus, is the unforgivable sin. This is what it means to blaspheme the Spirit. And the reason that it's unforgivable is because it's exactly the sort of sin that actually someone continues in, right? It's willfully, continually rejecting the clear evidence about Jesus. It's exactly what the Pharisees are doing. They've blinded themselves to the point where even though they see things for what they are, they can't accept it. And so they have no other choice but to make out that the Spirit's work is evil or false. Now, the question is, should we be worried that this is us? Should you and I be worried that we have committed this sin? Well, there's a no and a yes. As for the no, um, I want to speak to, to those of you who have what I would call a tender conscience. All right, so you're hearing these words of Jesus about an unforgivable sin, about blaspheming the Holy Spirit, and you're going, oh no, that could be me. I remember back in the past when I did this and I thought this and I thought that, that could be me. Am I, Dan, are you saying I'm not forgiven? Probably the fact that you're worried about it is actually a sign that, that this isn't you, <laughs> okay? It's probably a sign that you do in fact have genuine faith in Jesus Christ. Because Jesus isn't talking about the sort of person who's, who's actually really worried that maybe they have committed this sin. He's actually talking about the sort of person who hears all this stuff and just goes, you know what, I don't give a rip. I don't care. You know, well, that applies to someone else. I don't need to think about this because it doesn't apply to me. That's the sort of person that Jesus is talking about. And that's the sort of person who should be worried. In fact, that person might even be someone who's part of a church, even this church. And if you disagree, then hear these words from the book of Hebrews and notice the conditional language here. I want you to hear the word if. This is from Hebrews chapter 3, verse 14. We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. How do you know if you're part of God's kingdom? How do you know if you're on Jesus' side? If you hold your original confidence firm to the end, if you continue to trust in Jesus alone for the forgiveness of your sins right up to your dying day. We're not talking here about a decision that you made 30 or 40 years ago, perhaps even at a, a Billy Graham crusade or something like that. We're talking about do you trust Jesus today? Not 30 or 40 years ago, not five years ago. Do you trust him today? Or listen to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26 to 27. Again, listen for that if language. For if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. That's full on, isn't it? <laughs> but again, notice the if language. If you go on sinning deliberately, 
consciously, willfully rejecting Jesus as king, despite knowing the truth, then perhaps it shows that you never actually received the truth and believed in it in the first place. Right, your sins in that case haven't actually been covered by the sacrifice of Jesus. And the Bible is clear, you are heading towards judgment. You know, it's, it's possible to be part of a church or to have called yourself a Christian even for many years and yet not be part of God's kingdom. It's possible to come so close to the kingdom but actually not be part of it. To taste but not eat. To touch without actually holding. To perceive without actually believing. To understand without actually following. And this person might look religious, they might look spiritual but inside they're actually rejecting Jesus. And that's exactly what Jesus describes to the Pharisees at the end of this passage. He uses an illustration. Have a look at verse 33 with me. It's an illustration of a tree. How do you know if a tree is good or bad? Well, by its fruit. If it has good fruit, it's a good tree. If it has bad fruit, it's a bad tree. Like I remember when Sky and I first uh, moved into our, our home in Wyoming when we first got married. And uh, at the back of our home is this magnificent big lemon tree. And we were so excited. It was just covered in fruit, right? And so we're thinking, ah, we'll never pay for lemons again, you know, which is exactly the sort of thing you'd be excited about only when you first get married and get your first home together. But there was something wrong with this tree. First time that we actually examined the lemons closely, we saw that, oh, geez, like they're, they're covered in these odd bulbous lumps sticking out of them left, right and centre. And then we cut them open and oh, they were just no good to eat. The fruit was bad. And so we actually conscripted the nieces and the nephews to like strip all of the lemons off this tree. It filled up almost an entire green bin. Lots and lots of fruit, but the fruit was bad. And we could tell, therefore, that the tree was bad. And so we had to cut it right back and start over. This is a principle that we know from life. And it's, Jesus is pointing out the, evident, the obvious. A, a tree is known by its fruit. And Jesus looks at the lives and the words of the Pharisees. And here's the conclusion he comes to in verse 34. Look at what he calls them. You brood of vipers, you snakes. This is actually the accusation that John the Baptist had for uh, the crowd back in Matthew, uh, the earlier part of Matthew. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. In other words, these things, these words that the Pharisees are saying about Jesus and the work of the Holy Spirit, these blasphemies, betray the condition of their hearts. Their hearts refuse to accept the kingdom of God. They refuse to accept Jesus. They refuse to accept the work of the Holy Spirit. They are willfully rejecting the evidence in their hearts. And that can be seen in their words. And when Jesus returns to judge, these are the words he'll turn back at them. Look at verse 36 to 37. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. 
See, in this confrontation that we've witnessed in Matthew chapter 12, uh, the crowd doubt Jesus. Right? They're weighing him up. They're, they're assessing him. And the Pharisees accuse Jesus. They've assessed him and found him wanting. But it's not actually Jesus who's being assessed here in this confrontation. It's actually the crowd. And it's actually the Pharisees. He's assessing their hearts by their words. And he's assessing our hearts as well. Because every single one of us, every one of us, myself included, will one day stand before the risen King Jesus when he returns. And God's kingdom comes finally, fully and forever. And Jesus will look at the words we've spoken and what they reveal about the condition of our hearts. And he will decide whether we're really on his side or not. And so, let me urge you, examine where you stand today. Examine where you stand. Are you with Jesus or are you against Jesus? Don't simply assume. Perhaps you call yourself a Christian, but you're not actually trusting in Jesus to forgive you. Like if I were to ask you, why should Jesus allow you to be part of God's kingdom? You would say something like, oh, well, I'm a good person. I have a good heart. I've been kind. But no amount of good works can get us into God's kingdom. He might say, well, I've had all these spiritual experiences. No amount of spiritual experiences can get us into God's kingdom. It's only by trusting that Jesus has paid our debt, has taken God's judgment on our behalf at the cross. And so I urge you, friend, and hear this in the spirit of love. If you're hearing this and indeed concluding that you're not a Christian, turn to Jesus today. Turn to him and trust him. Let go of, of relying on good works or having a good heart or spiritual experiences you might have had and just trust Jesus because Jesus plus anything ruins everything. Okay, only trust Jesus for the salvation of your soul. And if that's something you'd like to chat through, send us a message on the website or give us a call. We'd love to help you consider that. Or perhaps you've been part of a church, even this church, but you just don't care about spiritual things. Right In this sort of coronavirus time, you've actually been kind of just enjoying not having to come to church and maybe you tune in while you're sort of doing something else at the same time. Um, but yeah, you're kind of liking being in your pyjamas and, and all the accoutrements of staying at home. Now, if we're honest, many of us enjoy that. And that's okay, particularly if we're sort of introverted and kind of enjoying the space. That's fine. But I'm actually describing the sort of person who's enjoying this to the extent that they're thinking, gee, why do I even go to church? Why do I even do this stuff? Right? Because you're the sort of person that doesn't care about spiritual things. You want to just do your own thing. And so your engagement with the Bible is something like, you know, you take the things that you like, but leave the things that you don't. Um, if uh, you're listening to a sermon, you often find yourself critical. You often find yourself disagreeing. Uh, if someone asks you how you're going in your relationship with God, you sort of brush it off by saying, oh, you know, I don't know. Or, oh, God. I don't want to talk about that. Friend, 
I want you to consider that you might be the very person that Jesus is describing here. And again, please hear this in the spirit of love. Because I know that, that for the person being described here, for someone to question that they are a Christian or not, seems like the height of arrogance. But please understand, these are the words of Jesus. This isn't just my opinion. These are the words of Jesus. You might be the very person that Jesus is describing. You may be willfully, continually rejecting the work of the Holy Spirit, rejecting the evidence that the Spirit provides that Jesus indeed is the Son of God. And you're doing that just through apathy, through not caring about any of this. Friend, if that's you, leave your sin behind and turn to Jesus today. Ask him to, to not only save you, but fill you with the Holy Spirit as he's promised to do and give you a new heart so that you can begin caring about the things that really matter. Please don't let the day finish before doing that. Finally, there will be some of you listening today, I hope actually many of you, who are sincerely trusting in Jesus. And maybe you've felt a bit of the fire and the heat of, of this passage and you're going, praise God that I do trust Jesus. Praise God that I am part of his kingdom. And if that's you, I just want to say, keep going. Keep going. Keep trusting Jesus. Keep following Jesus. Because here we are in this time right now, remember, where Jesus has put Satan on the ropes and he's delivered the knockout punch and Satan is still stumbling around. He's still wanting to fight back. But the day is coming where he will fall to the ground, the bell will ring, and God's kingdom will be here finally, fully, and forever. That day is coming when Jesus returns. And on that day, you will be safe from judgment. You will stand in victory over Satan and over sin and over death because you will be standing on the side of Jesus Christ who brings the kingdom of God. And so keep going. Even if you're plotting, even if it's hard, keep going, keep trusting Jesus, keep following him. Let's pray together. Lord God, um, this is a tough passage, but I pray that you would apply it to each of our hearts in the way that we need. In Jesus' name, amen.